You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I've grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune that she whistles night and noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs are second nature to me. Hi, I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 13, My Fair Lady, and with us today is author of that chapter, Peter Felicia. Peter Felicia has written about theater for The Star Ledger, Theater Week, Playbill, Theater Mania, Broadway Select, Encore, and Masterworks Broadway. He's written six books on theater, including three editions of Let's Put on a Musical. This four-term president of the Drama Desk Awards serves on its current nominating committee, as well as those for the Lucille Lortel Awards and Theater World Awards, whose ceremony he writes and emcees. He's a National Endowment for the Arts Assessor, Cincinnati Conservatory of Music Critic-in-Residence, Musical Theater Judge for ASCAP's Awards, Broadway Radio Commentator, and Creator for his one-man show, A Personal History of the American Theater. Peter, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So, I loved your chapter on My Fair Lady, but for listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to read the book yet, could you sort of sum up in your own words why is My Fair Lady included in this book? What makes it a key musical? Well, of course, a lot of people would say just this great success would be uh, worthy enough to be included in such a book. After all, this was the first musical to run longer than Oklahoma, um, mm. f- about 500 performances more than Oklahoma. And that was a big deal at the time. Now, <laughs> 2,717 performances gets you probably around 30 or 40th place. But <clears throat> back mm. then, that was a run. I mean, after all, the... Uh, 
the uh, theaters are basically the same size today, but the population has increased and tourists come. So shows run longer. But My Fair Lady was a big deal. And needless to say, it won the Tony Award um, for Best Musical. And it was the toughest ticket to get in town. But, you know, nobody thought it was going to amount to anything because first off, Rogers and Hammerstein tried musicalizing Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw and gave up and said it cannot be done. Lerner and Lowe, who had done Brigadoon, they'd had a hit with that and a failure with uh, Paint Your Wagon, said, we'll try it. And they tried and they said, you know, it can't be done. We they gave up on it. But finally, they said, you know, let's go back to it and try it again. And so at this point, we're dealing with a show that a lot of people felt was a two time loser, so to speak. So nobody expected very much from it. And then and then they went out and got Rex Harrison to play the lead. Now, the thing was. Rex Harrison, of course, was a fine actor. Um, no question about that. He had won a Tony Award for playing Henry VIII in Anne of the Thousand Days. Um, he was in the movie Blythe Spirit. I mean, everybody liked Rex Harrison in, in comic roles and dramatic roles. But could mm -hmm. the guy sing? I mean, you never bought an album called Rex Harrison Wishes You a Merry Christmas. Or oh, God. Rex Harrison Goes Latin. I mean, you know, those things didn't <laughs> exist. So as a result, everybody thought, whoa. What's that going to sound like? I mean, a, a voice like that. Are you crazy? Now, the thing is, Roger and Himstein, ironically enough, did choose him uh, as a possibility to play the king and the king and I a few years earlier. So, I mean, it wasn't so out of the whack that um, he'd be uh, considered for a musical, but still to the average person who buys theater tickets, it seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. But um, and in fact, he thought. Um, that it wasn't going to happen either. Um, there's a very famous story about the fact that in rehearsal, he was doing the songs and felt reasonably comfortable doing them. But then when he first heard the orchestra, um, he thought, oh, my God, I, I could never follow the orchestra. The, it's too loud. I mean, oh, my God. You know? So, you know, that was really they had to pull him out of his dressing room in New Haven to do the first performance. I mean, he was really, really reluctant to do it. So wow. so all things are against it. And let alone Julie Andrews, too, who was not that known a quality um, quantity at this point because mm -hmm. she had been the boyfriend, which was a success. Yes. But who was she? So. Um, so nobody thought much of this show uh, coming in. And of course, many times the show that you don't expect to be a success turns out to be the success uh, because people mm -hmm. have low expectations. So anyway, there he is. And um, not only does the show get rave reviews, um, all critics loved it. Um, it gets all the prizes, all that goes with that. Um, and Rex Harrison wins um, the award, uh, the Tony Award, and of course, will be one of the first people to win an Oscar for a Tony winning performance as well, but that's mm -hmm. down the line. But the point is my fair lady became the biggest selling record of all time. Now, I don't mean in the show category. I mean, in the country category, in the pop category, in the rock category, no album at that time sold more copies than my fair lady. Wow. So people got used to hearing this voice rasp out. <clears throat> I'm getting raspy myself, I guess, you know, I'm really getting into it anyway, rasp out and um, go on to to mesmerize people with these fabulous songs of uh, these misogynistic songs, to be frank. Um, mm. But, you know, they really, really um, came to appreciate the fact that the songs were so good and the lyrics were so terrific by Alan J. Lerner and the melodies are wonderful. I mean, so many songs from My Fair Lady became hits, um, mm. including um, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, which indeed was Rex Harrison's big 11 o'clock number. <clears throat> so um, 
people said, well, you know, maybe we don't need great voices in musicals anymore. Um, maybe it's not important. Maybe what's really important is to really have a character in a voice. And that maybe is more important. Now, of course, there's no denying that um, the Broadway musical up till this point, and we're talking, by the way, of 1956, mm-hmm. If you look at what happened 10 years before that, you know, you have John Raitt doing the soliloquy in Carousel <clears throat> and you have Alfred Drake and uh, Kiss Me Kate. You know, these these were guys with great voices and beautiful voices. Sure, indeed. You know, so but now now it's not as important. So as a result, let's start looking at all. Uh, and, and by the way, in, in the female category, there's Ethel Merman, you know, of course, who was very famous for her voice. And Mary Martin had a pleasant voice, too. But. Anyway, here we are. And now suddenly we're thinking, well, maybe um, it's a good idea to look at other people who would be interesting in musicals. That might be fun uh, to uh, to see other people who you don't expect to be in a musical to be in a musical. It doesn't have to be Enzio Pinza in, in um, South Pacific, you know, it may, mm. it may, um, or, and he had also done a musical called Fanny, which was a big success, too. So. You know, let's start looking around and see who might be interested in doing a musical. So um, in the next year, you had Robert Preston. Again, you don't have any albums by Robert Preston in your um, collection, but there he was. And that was another one where they felt, oh, um, we can't get anybody else. They offered that part to so many people. Danny (laughs) Kate, nobody wanted to do it. And ironically, some of the people who didn't want to do it would eventually do it on tour. Um, They took the role. But but Robert Preston, again, who is he? You know, I mean, as a musical theater person. Are you kidding? Um, Tony Randall, who many people know from the series, The Odd Couple, you don't expect him to sing, but he was in a musical called Oh, o Captain. Not that it was a hit, but he got the role. You know, um, by the way, a funny thing about um, Tony Randall, who always used to tell this story. It's not only a case that he couldn't sing well. He obviously couldn't dance well because the critic for the Herald Tribune said when Tony Randall dances, he tortures the air. So um, oh. he always. Remember- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maurice <laughs> Evans, who some people remember as being a warlock on the TV series Bewitched. Again, he didn't do much singing on that show, um, was in a Broadway musical called uh, Tenderloin, which was written by Bach and Harnick, who would later go on to write She Loves Me and Fiddler on the Roof. So um, Fritz Weaver, another dramatic actor who would win a Tony uh, for a dramatic role, uh, was playing Sherlock Holmes in Baker Street. Um, Again, not a big hit. Mm-hmm. Ran a while, but still, the fact is now people are thinking, well, can Sherlock Holmes uh, be in a musical? Would it seem odd if Sherlock Holmes were singing? And whatever the problems were with Baker Street, and there mm-hmm. were plenty. The thing was that Fritz Weaver did not look stupid singing as Sherlock Holmes. So okay. the boundaries are expanding, and that was really significant. So um, that's really a good. I mean, again, he only had one song in the, the musical he did before that called All American, but he, uh, which was written by Strauss and Adams, who had written by by Birdie. But the thing was, people were looking out of the box now. And that was kind mm. of exciting. Um, it happened with women, too. Shirley Booth. Now, I mean, you know, Shirley Booth um, had done a couple of musicals, but in small parts, um, a small part in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, a starring role in By the Beautiful Sea, I'll grant you. But the thing was, those were musical comedies and they were sp- specifically out to entertain. And now here comes a musical version of Juno and the Paycock. Now, that's a serious play by um, Sean O'Casey. 
Mm-hmm. Think about it. There's a, one of the characters in it has lost his arm in a war. I mean, d- d- can you picture a person like that singing and dancing? Well, in fact, that character did. But Shirley Booth, who was not known for having a beautiful voice, believe me, and was used to comic effect in By the Beautiful Sea and mm-hmm. A Tree Grosenberg comic, now was playing a serious role singing. And indeed, she uh, she carried it off uh, very well. The reason the show failed is because people weren't interested in seeing a musical version of Juno and the Paycock. It only lasted two weeks, but a recording shows that she really was very, very good in what she was doing. So, so then you started getting these um, stunt casting type things from TV stars. You know, there was Jackie Gleason, who was a big TV star at the time, who again was not known for his voice Mm -hmm. doing take me along a musical version of our wilderness, a Eugene O'Neill comedy. George Goble, a name you probably have never heard of, but he was a big TV star. Believe me, a big TV star was in a musical called Let It Ride, which was a musical version of Three Men on a Horse. Um, Again, it only lasted a couple of months, but he got the part. Sid Caesar was an enormous TV star, enormous TV star in the 50s for your show of shows. I mean, that that was a spectacular every Saturday night. I think it might have even sometimes been two hours on Saturday night, two hour show. I could be wrong about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if I'm right. So Sid Caesar was in Little Me, um, which uh, Neil Mm -hmm. Simon uh, wrote with um, Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee. And um, had he not been um, in terrible shape emotionally and um, he admitted in his autobiography he was a terrible drinker at that time Mm. and he was giving terrible performances but the thing was you know when it started out it got rave reviews was just that he wasn't um, competent to do it um, night after night after night but he got the part and a lot of people liked him at the beginning Mm. buddy hackett a comedian um, in a musical called i had a ball yeah really it kept going on and on what's really funny is when you think of it Lucille Ball. Now think of I Love Lucy, which you've probably seen and you probably know that in many episodes, there was a big joke of how Lucy Ricardo could not sing. Right. That was a big deal. You know, and the thing is, Lucille Ball did not have a pleasant voice. Again, you don't have any albums by Lucille Ball in your collection. And here she was in the musical Wildcat. And a lot of people did feel that um, her voice wasn't very good, um, but uh, it was a spirited score and it would have lasted a long time had Lucy stayed with it. But uh, the idea of doing eight a week and a show that didn't get such good reviews eventually wore on her. And because she was the producer, she put up all four hundred thousand dollars, all four hundred thousand dollars, which is all you needed in those days to do a musical. Um, so uh, she said, I'm closing it. But um, nevertheless, you know, she wanted to do it and and nobody thought, wait a minute, this woman can't sing. No, right this way. Your table's waiting, Lucy. We'll take you. We're very glad to have you. Shelly, your $400,000. And your $400,000. You bet. You bet. Indeed. You know, and Lucy could afford to lose the money, needless to say. So um, what's really bizarre, there's a musical called A Family Affair that um, was written by John Kander. Mm-hmm. Not John Kander and Fred Ebb. That would okay. happen later. This okay. is b- before um, Fred Ebb came to see it and uh, said, you know, I could write with this guy. Let me meet him. But uh, at this point, John Kander is writing, ironically enough, with James Goldman, who wrote The Lion in Winter a few years later, and William Goldman, who wrote uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and um, All the President's Men and won Oscars for them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it really, the three of them got together and wrote an original musical called A Family Affair about uh, a marriage, you know, a warring marriage. And here you had Shelley Berman, who was a stand up comedian. He made albums, he made many albums, but all stand up comedy. It was okay. <laughs> he didn't sing. 
Okay. Um, Eileen Heckert, a wonderful actress who would win an Oscar for Butterflies Are Free some years later, was also in it, but again, not a singer. Morris Karnofsky, um, a name you probably don't know because he had a big career going in the 40s. But then came the blacklist and he didn't work for a long time. Mm. But anyway, again, he, he did like King Lear. I mean, he, those are the shows that he did. <laughs> you know, Shakespeare, Shaw, all those things. And here now here are the three of them in a musical. And I'm telling you, that album is unlistenable. I mean, by the way, in those days, record companies were hot, hot hot, hot to signed up original cast albums. Even this Tenderloin that I mentioned <clears throat> with Maurice Evans, mm. when it debuted, it was the 14th best album, best-selling album in the country. I don't mean in the show category. There were only 13 records that week that sold better than Tenderloin. And I mean, again, it wasn't a hit show. People were buying original cast albums and Columbia was the leader. They were signing up so many of them. They did My Fair Lady. RCA, was um, really uh, jockeying to get in there, too. They they were certainly intent on uh, getting uh, as many as they could. They did Brigadoon. Um, Capital. Capital wanted to be in it as well. They did The Music Man. Well, where did a family affair wind up with? United Artist Records, which had never done an original cast album before. So this was a show that nobody really believed in. And part of it had to do with the fact Part of it, not all of it, but part of it had to do with the fact that you had these three non-singers. Um, maybe that was too much to go by, you know, really. Mm. I mean, you know, and, you know, one we can take, but three. And ironically enough, there's a song in the show called I'm Worse Than Anybody. It had nothing to do with singing. It had to do with the fact that they were all of the three of them got in each other's way and really caused more problems than uh, they needed to. So, um you know, look what happened. Uh, the show closed after two months. And by the way, what's really significant, all these people I have mentioned, all mm -hmm. these people I have mentioned never did another musical on Broadway. All these people who I'm talking about as TV stars now, the people who came from the TV world, um, mm. they never did another one. Yeah, Shirley Booth did. I mean, she played the nun in uh, Look to the Lilies. But I'm really talking about these TV stars, the Jackie Gleason, George Goebbels, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, uh, Lucille Ball, Shelley Burr, uh, never did another musical. Okay? Do you think that Rex Harrison being in My Fair Lady, do you think having that sort of person who is a serious actor, but also a comic actor, do you think that put some sort of respectability on the musical comedy that these people were then able to see themselves in these roles or willing to put themselves in these roles? Absolutely. Uh, without a question. F for one thing, um, the prestige of a Broadway musical was very, very strong then. Um, mm. it, notice, notice what's happened. It's really very interesting when you look at um, movies of musicals in that era or even some big movies that we don't really think about today, but like El Cid or Far From the Mad Madding Crowd. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting is they have overtures. They have intermissions. They wanted to make them seem like Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. um, and that was an important value then. 
now Broadway shows want to seem like movies. <laughs> they're, they're 90 minutes long. <laughs> There's no intermission. <laughs> You're in and out. Same type of thing. But the prestige was with Broadway in those days. That was the biggest thing of all. Uh, the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was on TV, used to have uh, adaptations of Broadway uh, plays. That was a very, and those were like event TV things. I mean, the fact that the Hallmark Hall of Fame, notice even the name Hall of Fame. I mean, doesn't mm-hmm. that imply importance? And they used to do uh, Broadway shows. So Broadway was really where the prestige was. Um, and that really changed um, in, in the late 60s when the baby boomers uh, grew up and were more interested in film and changed the course of things. But but yes, I mean, there's no question what you're saying is entirely accurate. So I'm also fascinated in you sort of mentioned how popular these original Broadway cast recordings were and how popular specifically My Fair Lady was. Do you as a critic as uh, someone familiar with this show, as an audience member, what about that album uh, kind of stirred up people to buy it, to want it, to want to keep listening to it? Well, ironically enough, um, it ties into what I was just saying about the fact that the prestige was with Broadway. And you seemed it was very popular with the middle classes to mm. buy these albums because it made them seem very accultured. It made them seem smart. Um, this is where the intelligence was. I mean, the, the lyrics of My Fair Lady are astonishingly intelligent. Mm. Um, you, you really had to be smart to really appreciate every nuance that were in, uh, especially Henry Higgins songs. Um, I'm an Ordinary Man, a hymn to him. Uh, those were songs that really did center on uh, intelligence. You really, uh, the jokes in them were sophisticated. Um, and so, people in in that era were not interested in being dumb and dumber. Um, And uh, it it really was a way of showing that uh, you were of a higher station. I remember going into um, (laughs) a person's house in 1957 and on the piano, there was a book of um, Rogers and Hammerstein hits. That's the only thing that was on the piano was on the music stand on the piano. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I knew those people until 1977. That book never left that piano. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this was the way of saying, see, see, we're we're very cultured people, you know, so so that's where it was. In fact, not only not only were original cast albums big, but it was amazing how many shows also got recordings that were popular recordings. And I don't mean people singing. What I mean is there were many instrumental albums of Broadway scores. Um, Mm. There were many instrumental albums of My Fair Lady, Porgy and Bess um, got plenty of them. Um, There were uh, instrumental albums of flops like Saratoga, which you've never heard of, of Whoop Up, which you've never heard of. These are shows that only ran a short period of time, but there were orchestra leaders who used to interpret these shows or jazz musicians that happened a lot too, that used to interpret these shows. And these albums went out there and a lot of people would buy them simply to hear the music uh, to play while they're eating dinner or what have you. But, but those albums were very popular too. And when the original cast albums started dying down, and in fact, it started happening they noticed in 1966 because here's what happened Mm. in 1966 mame opened mame was a titanic hit it became one of the longest running shows um in in broadway history at the time all Mm. right but people were noticing that this album on columbia records did not sell as well as flower drum song 
eight years earlier. In 1958, Flower Drum Song outsold My Fair Lady about two to one, even though, my, uh, I'm sorry, Flower Drum Song outsold Mame two to one, and yet Mame ran two and a half times longer oh, than Flower Drum Song did. So people were noticing, oh, the bloom is off the rose. Um, something is happening here. And what happened, of course, in 1964 were the Beatles, and they changed the course of uh, American music. Now, ironically enough, that same year in 1964, what had happened was Hello, Dolly opened, and that was the number one album in the country. Even in the Beatles era. Now I'm talking album. I'm talking about 33 and a third record, which has, you know, a number of songs on each side of the record. Now, number two album in the country that summer, Funny Girl. Those oh, were wow. the two biggest selling albums. Okay. Now, eventually the Beatles albums would overtake that. And indeed, um, and the reason why is because baby boomers, people born in the late 40s, were now 18 years old mm -hmm. and they were working and they had money where they used to buy 45 records, single records for 98 cents a piece. Now they could afford 398, 498, 598 a record. Mm. And so that's where everything turned around and they were more interested in the new sound. Part of this had to do, um, as strange as this may sound, part of this had to do with the Kennedy assassination because the Kennedy assassination took place on November 22nd, 1963. Mm -hmm. The Beatles released I Want to Hold Your Hand um, in December of that same year. And by February, they were on the Ed Sullivan show, which really cemented their success. And the point was that we needed something new in this country after the assassination of this young president. Mm. The young people in this country loved Kennedy because he was the youngest president ever to be elected and he seemed young. And again, this was an administration that made very clear that it loved Broadway musicals. You have mm. heard, I'm sure, that it was known as the Camelot years because he right. liked to listen to Camelot. Supposedly that's been aggrandized over the years, but that's what the nation was told, mm. that he really loved um, Broadway. He went to, to the premiere of Mr. President uh, in Washington, so on and so forth. Um, there was no question that he was well known as a lover of Broadway musicals. And so was Jackie. So suddenly that's extinguished. And suddenly these guys come from England and they have a song called I Want to Hold Your Hand. And even though, believe me, baby boomers were much more men were much more interested in holding more than hands. Um, the song took off partly because we needed something new and we needed it fast. And that's where everything turned around. So suddenly original cast albums on selling as well. Once the Beatles started taking hold, um, Hello, Dolly and um, Funny Girl with the Last Gasps of Greatness. Yes, there would be another big original cast album four years later hair but that didn't sound anything like a conventional broadway mm. musical yes that made it to number one but again those sounds had nothing to do with rogers and hammerstein and learner and low believe me and then it took a long time before uh, there were other um original cast albums that did uh very well i mean hamilton certainly did but that's a long time down the path mm. well and then when you're mentioning things like hair things like Hello, Dolly, things like My Fair Lady doing well as albums immediately coming to mind uh, are all of these covers, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. by jazz artists, mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. pop artists, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Nat King Cole having sure. a full My Fair Lady album. Do you think that adds to the popularity of the cast album itself? Yeah, because it validates it. Um, um, in fact, I, I have heard many people say, you know, 
um, I heard certain songs from uh, My Fair Lady on the radio sung by these cover artists. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and as a result, I was intrigued. And, and in those days, believe me, um, disc jockeys used to say uh, such and such a song from My Fair Lady, such and such a song mm-hmm. from a Gypsy. They used to do that. Uh, again, it gave it prestige. Uh, Rob Marshall, who directed the musical of uh, the movie of Chicago um, and his sister Kathleen Marshall, who has directed um, many, many Broadway musicals and um, both of them are terrific um, choreographers as well, uh, said that when they were growing up, when they would hear a song they liked, they would say, gee, I wonder what that's from. Meaning that they thought it would be uh, immediately from a Broadway show because it was a, a, a good song. I mean, certainly songs stepped out of shows. And to be fair to musical theater today, musical theater writing over the years became so specific to character. And some right. of that has to do with My Fair Lady, too. That that's why a lot of those songs cannot be um, pop songs today. A lot of them can't because they're too specific to the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're never going to get a pop song of you got to have a rudder on the ark from two by two, which is a musical about Noah and the ark. I mean, what you a know, bummer. What a yeah. bummer. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not going to happen. So as a result, um, because musical theater writing has been far more detailed in character as time has gone on, you can't take these songs stepping out of the show and make them into pop hits. Not very easily. In fact, I, mean, I just mentioned Gypsy and there's a very famous story. Stephen Sondheim was writing the lyrics to Gypsy, and he went first uh, with a song called um, Small World. And the point is, here's Rose, who has met a man who is not interested in show business, but she wants to get him interested. And she points out all the things they have in common. Uh, we have so much in common. It's a phenomenon is a very great <laughs> lyric. Anyway, so she says, um, funny, I'm a woman with children. Um, you're a man who loves children. Well, when Julie Stein got the lyric, uh, the composer, he said, no, don't do this, because therefore um, you're eliminating an entire sex that can sing this song. We want this song to be popular. So as a result, you know, you can't have I'm a woman with children. No man can sing that, you know. Um, so uh, but sometimes, said, yeah, but it's right for the character. And ironically enough, I mean, you know, Julie Stein was had 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 many hits uh, before this. Um, High Button Shoes was a hit. Bells Are Ringing was a hit. Um, you know, he really was an established. He had won an Oscar for two, three coins in the fountain. The fact remained the song time. Yes, had done West Side Story. Yes, he had. But uh, the word around town was the fact that Leonard Bernstein had really written a lot of the lyrics about West Side Story, which indeed he did. In fact, I mean, he the first poster of that said lyrics by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. And wow. Leonard Bernstein said, oh, you know, um, listen, why don't you just take sole credit? Um, so the thing was that uh, Julie Stein had the power. And yet... When they talked to Jerome Robbins, the director choreographer, who really <laughs> was a big deal and a very hard, um, hard nosed guy. Uh, yes, that's how the lyric wound up. And yet they adapted the song um, for <laughs> for Johnny Mathis, who had a big hit with Small World, that song. So uh, it worked out for both ways. But the thing was that, yes, there was very much interest in recordings uh, by cover artists. And Julie Stein used to have in his contract with every original cast album, hey, whatever company it was, Columbia Records uh, for Bells Are Ringing, whatever which one it was that he signed up with, he said, you must release four of my songs with your stable of singers that make pop records. That okay. is a demand and that was it has to be. So um, so a lot of songs did get out because uh, he made that demand in his contract. And so you would often see 
uh, people who recorded for the same label of the original cast album doing songs from the show that would happen quite a bit um you may have never heard of jerry vale but um anyway he was a columbia records artist and because um he had um uh, because they did the uh, they were signed to do the um cast album of draft the cat um he um he did a song from draft the cat so did barbara streisand but that was another reason her husband at the time elliot gould was in the show so she decided to record one of the songs now in the show he sang the song it was called she touched me when she did the song of course it was called he touched me and the irony was as if it wasn't bad enough that streisand was this rising star and elliot gould wasn't at the time he would have success later but at the time he was floundering wouldn't you know that the song he sang he got to sing on broadway for a week and she had this hit song with it you know i mean so mm. no wonder the marriage ended a few years later two years later so um you know but but that was a big deal you know whatever record company signed um you would you would get a recording um a song a show that never came to broadway closed in detroit written by frank lesser though who had written guys and dolls and how to succeed called pleasures and palaces was signed again by the aforementioned united artists records and lena hahn was recording for them then she made a recording of the title song so uh so a lot of that was going on back then but try to find it now with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mm. Well, and it's also interesting, a song that you mentioned already from My Fair Lady, I've grown accustomed to her face, that when that's being covered by a woman the pronouns were not always switched they they usually were though um pronouns definitely um were uh taken into consideration in fact a lot of people um assumed um that he touched me was the way it was sung in the show uh, because mm -hmm. why wouldn't it be you know i mean you just assume that um female artists looked for the female characters in the show and uh, sang their songs but yeah there were there were uh, some uh, anomalies there um and um and you know everybody was very happy just to get uh, the recordings out there that was just such an important thing but um but again because writing got so specific it really became a problem. But I mean, here we were with My Fair Lady with um, On the Street Where You Live, a song that was almost dropped, by the way, mm. um, uh, not sung by Rex Harrison, by the way. But um, anyway, um, people didn't know this guy came on the second act started singing um, On the Street Where You Live and nobody remembered who he was. Um, he had, oh. They'd seen him in a previous scene, but he wasn't the important character in the scene. And so um, Alan J. Lerner had to write a verse uh, explaining who he was, saying, uh, reminiscing of his meeting Eliza mm -hmm. Doolittle. So the verse set up and they said, oh, that's who that guy is. And then he could sing on the street where you live. But I could have danced all night, um, even 
though it has a very strange lyric when she sings, I'll never know what made it so exciting. She should know she got to she was able to speak correctly in the rain in Spain. So, I mean, but uh, that became a hit song, too. And in fact, uh, that became the go to audition song for so many um people who are auditioning for, for musicals. Um, there was a joke of that. There was a musical. Well, no, there was a play called Say Darling, which was about um, the making of a musical. And the joke was every actress who came in to audition for the role sang, I could have danced all night. That was the joke because it became the go to song that happens occasionally. A song becomes so famous in a Broadway musical um, that it becomes the song that everybody auditions with. A Corner of the Sky from Pippin um, is certainly one that was in the 70s, um, in the 60s, The Impossible Dream. And in recent years, um, certainly um, Defying Gravity from Wicked has become the go-to audition song, as well as um, uh, Astonishing, I think it's called, from Little Women, um, is, is one that uh, you hear a lot, too, in auditions. So, uh, so there may not be hit songs anymore, but there are hit songs from the vantage point of people auditioning. They, they find songs that they like and they do them. So whether they have good voices or not, to get back to what we were originally talking about. <laughs> Do you think that we'll move back to a place where songs being written for the Broadway theater can become hits? Or do you think that's a thing of the past that we're not going to see ever again? Well, historically speaking, pendulums do swing back. And um, what I've noticed now is something that is analogous to what was happening essentially 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. 100 years ago, musicals were very silly. Um, they um, thrived on being um, light, fluffy entertainments with uh, no substance behind them at all. Uh, they were called the princess shows. They were the first American shows that really, really made a difference um, in, in Broadway, because up until then, there was basically um, Broadway was importing operettas from Europe. But suddenly, mm-hmm. Jerome Kern and, and uh, P.G. Wodehouse and um, Guy Bolton said, why don't we do American shows with American themes? And they did. And they had a lot of popular songs, but the 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 books weren't good and they were very silly. And um, so we went through a period where shows were silly. And then um, Showboat happened and Showboat was a serious musical. I mean, really, um, a lot of tough things happened in Showboat. And musicals might have grown up right then and there. That was 1927, December of 27. Think about that December of 20. The reason I'm making a point of that is because fewer than two years later in October of 29, we had the depression and suddenly musicals had to be happy go lucky again because, Mm. you know, these were tough times and people needed an escape. So it wasn't until the 40s with um, Oklahoma, which had a murder at the end of the show. I mean, what musical has that that. that indeed things started getting more serious and and musicals became more integrated with the plot and et cetera, et cetera. So things got very serious and um, musical theater really changed. Well, now things are getting very frivolous again. And what seems to have happened, of course, more than anything else, is that the audience, again, baby boomers have aged into theater goers. They Mm -hmm. have the money. And um, and there's been a nice um, certain effort to uh, get kids involved. Um, Rent was very important in getting kids involved, not just because of the subject matter, not just because the characters were their age. They did the wonderful thing of allowing the first two rows of the theater to be sold for $20, Mm -hmm. um, because up 
until then, kids used to have to sit in the last rows of the second balcony. That's all they could afford. And, right. and it's, it's no fun being way far away. And here they were right up front. So they were treated as first class citizens. Anyway, my point uh, uh, about this is that so um, the baby boomers who grew up with rock music want to hear rock music and baby boomers are terribly nostalgic. And so as a result, we have these shows where we're jukebox musicals where indeed what we're hearing more than anything else are songs from the past. And that's good enough mm-hmm. for the baby boomers who want to relive their youth and um, hear the songs that they grew up with, whether or not the books are terribly good in between. Um, well, all right, we'll we'll wait until the next song comes. That's fine. So <laughs> so we have these biographical musicals and more are coming. I mean, after all, MJ just opened this week and mm. <clears throat> just uh, start picking up the mantle that ain't too proud uh, left, um, which was about the temptations. And um, there's a lot. There was the share show um, about share. Of course, I wonder how many people went to the share show expecting to see share. One would expect that, wouldn't you think? Right. I mean, especially the, of the, the show. artist is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, really, I mean, some people must have been disappointed. No, no reflection on the three ladies who played share at very parts of their life. They were terrific. Mm. But anyway, <clears throat> so we are in an era where um, we're back to the princess shows where the books really don't count very much and uh, people just want the songs. So I do believe, I don't think I'll live to see it, but I do believe uh, perhaps in the 2040s, um, somebody's going to say, you know, the musical theater needs to grow up and we're going to uh, get serious shows again and we're going to get shows that uh, with, with original scores that are going to be more integrated. And I do think there will be room for hit songs, but um, you'll live to see it, Andrew. I won't. Well, so... You have a very illustrious past as a critic, so I'd love to know, uh, is there anyone who is starting to do work today that you think you could envision sort of leading that charge in 20 years? Well, um, certainly I I know names that would mean nothing to you. I I do go to a lot of readings, um, but um, let's talk about the people who have had a modicum of success or even more than a modicum. I do believe in Ben Pasek and and Justin Paul, who started their career with um, their Broadway career anyway, with A Christmas Story, which was a musical set in the 30s. And they perfectly got the 30s sound that was really so many musicals today that are set in um different eras from today still use music of today and it's it's wrong to have people of um past eras have musicals that sound like today's songs but uh, they adapted very well now since then they've really concentrated on more contemporary shows uh stories uh dogfight which um um, was a a minor success for them but certainly dear heaven hansen which was amazing a major success for them still running on broadway um they they certainly showed that they could write with a contemporary sound but if indeed somebody tomorrow offered them a show that was set in the 40s um, and they wanted to do it. I guarantee you that score would sa- sound like a 40 score because mm-hmm. they would work very hard in doing that. But um, but yes. And uh, what's really interesting is Steve Flaherty, who certainly was um, a, a product of uh, a later generation. Um, I would imagine if I had to guess, Steve was in his fifth is now in his 50s at most. Um, the fact remains that uh, when he did Ragtime set in 1906, it certainly sounded like that era. And he got the mm-hmm. Ragtime sound beautifully. So um I, I, you know, there's, I, I would like to see more musicals with original scores. 
um, much okay. more than what we have now. That's me. If I may cast my three electoral votes, mm. that's what I would like to uh, hear. Um, it was very exciting going into a theater and hearing songs you never heard before and coming out and saying, wow, I love that song, whatever it might be. Um, so as opposed to going in, knowing the songs already. Um, so, mm. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that two shows this year that had um, well this <laughs> not quite this year but recent shows let's put it that way um, but shows that were still running um, this season and um, have closed one permanently one maybe permanently I had wonderful books and I'm talking about Jagged Little Pill mm -hmm. and Girl from the North Country um, both of which the writing in the books were terrific I mean you really got involved in the characters and those stories you really cared about them. Um, so even though <clears throat> the songs um, basically were written beforehand and had to be uh, adapted to uh, the book writer had to adapt those songs into the story and often had to make situations uh, involving the story that indeed um, wouldn't have happened if the song hadn't been written in advance. Uh, the, the, the book writers did excellent jobs, excellent jobs in um, in fitting them in and making them sound as if they were really written for the shows, um, that they weren't uh, taken from albums uh, here and there. No, uh, they really made them sound as if uh, the book was written and the songwriters looked at the book and said, oh, a good song would go here. Let me write it. So um, so the writing of books, I, I think, um, on the basis of those two may very well be uh, a, a, an indication that we're going to have very strong jukebox musicals as time goes on uh, because of the book mm -hmm. writers, because more people, well, let's face it, so many playwrights want to have a musical success because there's much more money in musicals. Right. I mean, you know, it's very interesting. If you looked at the top running, let's go back to uh, the early 80s. Okay, if we go back mm -hmm. to the early 80s and we look at the top 10 musicals um, at that time, the longest running musical was Greece. Greece is probably now in 15th place. Okay, mm -hmm. so many musicals have run longer than Greece. If we go back to 19, the early 80s, and we look at the top 10 longest running plays. All right, that's 40 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And you look at the list of the top 10 longest running plays now, 40 years later, what's changed? Nothing. Wow. Nothing. No play has cracked the top 10 in 40 years. So the thing is, musicals are where the money is. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, even playwrights want to write musicals. People who never even thought about writing a musical, who consider themselves playwrights and would only write serious plays. When people come to Lynn Nottage and say, do you want to write a musical about Michael <laughs> Jackson? She says, yes, mm -hmm. even though her hands are tied because she can't really deal with so much of what we know about Michael Jackson. The fact is she did the best she could. Um, and um, certainly uh, you, you watch the show and you say, um, <laughs> you know, there's another way that um, Michael Jackson singing I'm bad uh, could really be used in a very different context um, mm. that uh, because he was bad, we're led to believe by many people, um, even though, let's face it, he was exonerated in court. But nevertheless, so Lynn had her hands tied because the producers of the show, some of them are people who are involved with Michael Jackson's estate. And they said, here's what we want. So, uh, but still, you know, there's the money. You know, I mean, yes, Lynn Nottage's plays have been extraordinarily well received. Um, and two Pulitzer Prizes, how bad can they be? The fact remains, why aren't they in the top 10 of the um, longest running plays?
<laughs> right. uh, but, <laughs> you know, because plays just don't run that long. They just don't. Um, it's very rare for a play to run even 500 performances now. Very rare. And notice how many plays are done by um, institutional companies like Manhattan Theater Club, a second stage where there are limited runs. You know, that, you know, two months, three months, maybe, you know, so a lot of plays start out. It's not like the old days when plays opened and hoped they would run forever. Now um, they, they only run a short period of time. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people want to um, a lot of stars want to do Broadway plays. You know, I'll, yeah, I'll do it for two months. I'll take the financial loss and maybe I'll win a Tony. I truly believe the word EGOT. You know, Emmy, <laughs> Grammy, Oscar, Tony is one of the reasons why um, people come to Broadway. You know, they think, oh, let me do that. That's a big challenge. Let me win all four awards. Let me do that. But to do to win the Tony, you have to do it. You have to come here to Broadway and you have to learn the part and you have to do it. But if you do it for a couple of months, you might get away with it. You might get a Tony and um, you don't have to come to Broadway ever again. Um, and I do believe a lot of people who don't win that Tony the first time around, such as Tom Hanks, um, who was in a play, got a nomination, was damn mm -hmm. good, no question, but didn't win. You know, I have a feeling we're not going to see him again. I think he was going to say, I took my shot. That's fine. Do I really need an EGOT? I mean, um, you know, a, a lot of these people um, who don't have an EGOT have an ego, and that's good enough, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they've, they've certainly been rewarded in many ways, and that's perfectly fine. Take a page from Whoopi's book, just be a producer and get best musical, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, Lord knows that she's done her time on stage, but again, oh, yeah. uh, in limited engagements, you know, even when mm -hmm. she took over and funny thing happened the way the forum, you know, it was only for a limited time. So, uh, and again, you know, to a lot of them, it's uh, maybe to say it's a goof is, is not really fair because that um, makes it sound not serious, but you know, it's, it's a change of pace. Let's put it that way for some people. So yeah, they'll do it for a couple of months and uh, yeah, let's live in New York, you know, let's go to these, uh, nice restaurants you know it's a fun place to live so uh why not woody allen woody allen when he was uh he wrote a play play it again sam in 1969 and he was in it hmm. and he said this was his perception i'm not saying it's everybody's perception but his perception was that this is the easiest job in the world i just show up eight times a week for a couple of hours i have aside from wednesdays and saturdays i have every day to myself all day long um you know i know the show because i wrote it you know it's it's the easiest job in the world now some people feel it's the hardest job in the world and they have a point too because doing the same thing night after night after night after night is very hard for some people mm. you know um and um i mean some people i'm not going to give names but i i have gone to see people at the beginning of the runs who were terrific and i've gone to see him at the end of the run and um they're improvising like crazy they're, they're trying new things to give them credit they're trying mm -hmm. to do it a different way but the different way is an inferior way to the first way they did it i don't know if you remember when you were in college um in high school they used to say when you took the sats um chances are the first answer you're inclined to give is the best answer is the right answer well mm. similarly speaking <laughs> these performers who do shows their first instincts and the director's instincts are the best ones the the choices they make later are often not as good i've seen that happen time and time and time again with people whose names you know very very well and you mm. respect but i'm telling you seeing these people at the end of the run because they they're just so bored by doing it night after night after night after night after night after night, after night that they they have to do something different with their lives. Mm. Well, it's and that's something that plagued the original production of Pygmalion uh, with sort of this nebulous ending that is different from My Fair Lady that actors playing 
Professor Higgins uh, would kind of go out on a limb and say, I'm just going to give the audience what they want. I'm going to give her a bouquet of flowers. I'm going to end things well with Eliza. Uh, do you have an opinion on the way the ending of My Fair Lady kind of sure. is not as open-ended? Well, uh, sure. It, it, the, there's no question that in the original production, yes, Eliza comes back. And yes, Henry Higgins is not going to change who he is. And um, he asks her to get the slippers. Mm -hmm. And as the stage direction indicates, um, she understands. That's literally um, in the stage direction. She understands. And so we really have a situation where the guy is going to uh, have the marriage if there is a marriage. And chances are we're led to believe there is mm -hmm. um, on um, on his terms. Now, Shaw um, did end the play um, um, in uh, a, a nebulous fashion, too. But he then wrote an essay sometime later mm -hmm. saying that Eliza married Freddie. Mm -hmm. She did not uh, marry Henry Higgins. So that's apparently what he believed, or at least what he wanted. Well, um, when L.J. Lerner wrote the show, he actually wrote a little, um, not quite an essay. It's only a few sentences, but he says, um, Shaw, forgive me, but I don't think you're right. I think that she does wind up with Henry Higgins. Um, yes, I, I, there was a production in England with Jonathan Price, uh, where at the end of the show, they both ran into each other's arms, which was really quite nice. I, I, I think this should be a happy ending. And I think what <laughs> my fair lady should say is, even if you are a low class person, education can make you a worthy person enough to be with a high tone person, a, a, a learned person um, who is uh, from a different class to begin with. Um, again, class is such a big thing in London. Class distinctions are very, very important. There certainly were, I, I don't know about right now, I don't live there after all, but certainly in the 50s, that was still an issue back then. And um, so as a result, the idea of marrying a commoner um, seemed to be anathema to so many people, which is why that ending was left to um, a theater goer's own interpretation. But yeah, I'd like to think that um, certainly people who can be educated um, should be worthy of people who had been educated already. Why not? I mean, um, especially that, that's a very an American interpretation, because after all, we are in a country that ostensibly, ostensibly believes that um, um, all people are created equal. So uh, if they are, well, then everybody's worthy of everybody. And so let's let's reflect that. So I like um, my fair lady that implies that they're going to get together and live happily ever after. I don't know if they will. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody will in musicals. I mean, you know, I don't think Sky Masterson guys and dolls is going to be happy beating a drum for the mission very much longer. But um, no. um, I don't think um, I, I, it's always amazing to me in South Pacific at the end of the first act, when uh, those two kids run in and she finds out that he has two children, that she doesn't say to him, uh, you know, Emil, before you asked me to marry you, you could have told me I'm going to be the stepmother of two kids. You right. know, I mean, that that makes that's a very different value system. You know, I mean, being being married to a man with no children, being married to a man with two children. I'm not talking about race at all. I'm just talking about two mm. kids. That's a lot of work. I mean, so um, no, you know, I mean, so um, so while I can hope that Eliza and Henry would um, live happily ever after, it's not impossible that he would pull rank on her as time whenever she did something wrong and uh, pointed out to her. Well, it is it's complicated because class aside, uh, their relationship has started as teacher pupil. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, are yeah. they going to be able to get out of that? Um, 
Yes, even though Anna in The King of Siam tells us by your pupils, you'll be taught. And to a degree, she has taught him. The -hmm. fact remains that it's much easier for him to pull rank and for, you know, we Mm -hmm. so many of us never get over um, who we were. Um, it's, it's one of our great curses in life. I mean, every psychiatrist will tell you a person's childhood is, uh, is so definitive and what that person becomes. And so many people just can't get over it. And they, um, go back to who they were as children, emotionally and intellectually even. So, uh, yeah, it, it, when he pulls rank on her, she she's going to remember that she was this flower girl, um, with, um, it's even established she has bad teeth. That's even in the stage mm. directions. Um, she could use the service of a dentist i think the uh, expression uh, in the stage direction goes but yeah yeah but um still while we're actually sitting in the theater we'd like to believe that uh, these two could have a relationship and live happily ever after mm. and i mean let's talk about what's not in shaw's stage directions you know he's got <laughs> a novel worth uh every time you turn the page it's like and here's what's actually going on behind the scenes do you think that that intricate subtext that those intricate commentaries on society do you think those carried over well to Lerner and Lowe's musical adaptation the irony is that um <clears throat> my fair lady is not so much a musical of Shaw's Pygmalion as it is of the 1938 movie of Pygmalion mm. that really was the great influence because in Shaw's Pygmalion, you do not go to the ascot. You do not go to right. the ball. And, but in the movie, you do. One has to wonder when Rodgers and Hammerstein were trying it. And I heard Richard Rodgers say, um, we were convinced it couldn't be done. And you don't mean to tell you that it could. You, know, you don't need me to tell you that it could be done because they did it. But uh, mm-hmm. um, it, it's funny, there's a song called You Did It in the Show. And, uh, and they did do it. Um, but one has to wonder if they were just reading the play and never bothered to screen the movie. I mean, obviously, screening movies in those days was far more arduous. I mean, now, you know, mm. we pop in a DVD, we stream it, you know, fine. You know, uh, do you want to do the show? Well, in two hours, you'll have your answer. But back then, I don't know. I mean, one would think that Roger and Hammerstein, especially in the 50s, we're out of um, five musicals, four were wild hits. Um, one would think and, and really um, what's really interesting of as of 1954 or so, the top five musicals in mm-hmm. terms of length of run, four of them were Rodgers and Hammerstein. The only one that wasn't was um, Annie Get Your Gun by Irving Berlin. Mm-hmm. But the other four, you know, uh, Oklahoma um, and uh, King and I and um, uh, South Pacific, um, I'm sorry, so I should say three out of four uh, were the longest running musicals in Broadway history. So you would think that they would have the power to get this movie. And for all I know, they saw the movie. I've never heard one way or the other whether they did or didn't. Mm. But um, but gee, I would think that, uh, you know, Oscar Hammerstein, who did such a fabulous job of adapting the movie of Anna and the King of Siam. I mean, it's much more King and I is much more based on that movie from mm-hmm. 1946 than it is on Margaret Langdon's memoir uh, mm-hmm. or novel or whatever it is. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever it is, we'll whatever it, it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, yeah, well, boy, I'm telling you, you know, there are so many stories about Anna, the real Anna that has nothing to do with that uh, woman. Uh, but mm. nevertheless, uh, so since he saw the movie of Anna and the King of Siam, 
didn't he see the movie A Pygmalion? Uh, uh, it's just amazing that they wouldn't see what Lerner and Lowe saw, uh, especially Lerner, um, the wordsmith, uh, of going to the ball and going to the races. Uh, very mm. important scenes, you know. So, um, so I think it had much more to do with that than anything else, the movie. Hmm. And do you think, just because you've mentioned movies, do you think in hindsight, would you have liked to have seen Julie Andrews do the movie? Or are you happy that we have the performance by Audrey Hepburn dubbed by Marnie Nixon? Well, um, almost across the board, I would rather see the person who did the Broadway show uh, do it because I wanted that. I, I would like that performance captured forever. Mm -hmm. um, it, after all, it, it doesn't take long for people to age or, or you know, or as I say before, change the role and um, in what they're portraying. So so I'm very grateful to have Gwen Verdon in Damn Yankees. That's mm. um, that's really quite wonderful to have her doing it. So, yes, I would have preferred Julie Andrews in um, in My Fair Lady, the, the Audrey Hepburn, who was fine. But, the, you know, also when she starts singing the rain in Spain and she's not singing the rain in Spain because Marnie Nixon is the mm -hmm. difference in the voices is so enormously um, yeah. obvious that um, it takes you out of the situation. And so many musical movies where they dubbed people um, it's, you can really tell it's not the same person who you just heard speaking. So I'm always uh, for um, the original person doing, it. and you know, this must be very hard on Cheetah Rivera, who after all was the original Anita in West Side. Mm -hmm story and was also the original Velma in Chicago. Why is this really hard for her? Not just because she lost the part, but the two people who got the part won Oscars. You know, Rita Moreno in West Side Story and Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago. They got Oscars. Well, you know, Cheetah Rivera, certainly who originated those roles, after all, you know, could have gotten Oscars too. Now, granted, um, the Chicago movie was more than a quarter century later after the right. original production. So we'll, we'll let her up. We'll let Hollywood off the hook for that one. <laughs> but after all, I mean, um, the movie of West Side Story was only four years after um, um, the uh, original Broadway production. So she still could have done it, you know, oh, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know uh, who's older, Rita Moreno or Cheetah Rivera, but I don't think there's, in fact, I think Rita Moreno's older. So, I mean, the fact is mm. um, having a, a, a younger Anita, not by much, maybe a year or two, uh, wouldn't have been an issue. So it's really too bad that that's the way it played out, but it must be very painful for Cheetah Rivera to look at those two situations and say, wow, I'm the one who um, blazed the trail there. Right. Uh, and look what happened. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm always, I'm always for the original one. Un un unless the person really got bad reviews. I mean, for example, um, Jill Hoth, H-A-W-O-R-T, was the original leading lady of Cabaret. And this is a very controversial performance on stage. A lot of people thought she was wonderful. I thought she stunk. But so as a result, yeah, give me Liza Minnelli for the movie. And, oh, and, of course. You know, and, and the thing is, um, when Cabaret was reviewed by Walter Kerr in, the, in uh, the Times, he said Cabaret is a brilliant musical. Uh, I'm sorry, a stunning musical, brilliantly conceived with one wild wrong note. And what he meant was that leading lady. And he went on to castigate her as time went on in the review. Mm. But, you know, I mean, uh, so, but some people will say, oh, she was brilliant. She was, uh, but I'm very glad that Liza Minnelli did the role because I thought, you know, so the answer obviously is if I didn't like the performer in the, on the stage show, yeah, give me somebody from the movies. But if I thought the stage person was terrific, let's see that person in the movies. Mm. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. 
listeners, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about My Fair Lady, please also review the links in the below description. I am Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Just a most forgiving man. But I shall never take her back. If she were crawling on her knees, let her promise to atone, let her shiver, let her moan. I'll slam the door and let the Hellcat breathe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Org, because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.